You know, I think the news these days makes pretty clear that uh, cyber issues are front and center. That's not just uh, the continuing fallout over the 2016 campaign, but, um, you know, it's becoming a bigger and bigger part of the way states compete and uh, interact. Um, a few months ago, uh, we published an, a, a policy analysis paper by Brandon Valeriano and his co-author, Benjamin Jensen. Um, and uh, it, it has a good way of framing, I think, what's at stake and what kind of questions we should be asking about what cyber policy and posture the United States ought to have. Um, just uh, recently in the news, I've seen a couple things that made me think of some of the uh, bottom line uh, sort of uh, recommendations in, in this paper. Um, the Obama administration had reached a deal in 2015, an agreement with China, to essentially stop or dramatically reduce cyber attacks intended to steal trade secrets. And that did, in fact, result in um, a, reduce, a, a, a reducing of uh, cyber attacks from China of the kind that we wanted to stop. And the Trump administration came in and he appeared to disregard that 2015 agreement while also sparking Sino-American tensions on trade and other security issues. And voila, Chinese hacks returned to previous levels. Um, just the other day, I saw uh, a New York Times article, um, I think May 6th, uh, reporting that Chinese intelligence had captured NSA code from a cyber attack and then repur repurposed it and then used it on uh, countries in Europe and Asia and uh, companies as well. And so, so these two things point to uh, one reason we should be careful uh, because there are norms that can be constructed in cyberspace um, and certain behaviors can lead to the building of better norms and the better situation overall and certain behavior can, can lead uh, in another direction. Um, we have a lot to get to, so I'm just going to try to uh, introduce our guests and get right to it, step out of the way. Brandon Valeriano, to my immediate left, is Donald Bren Chair of Armed Politics at Marine Corps University. His book with Ryan Maness, Cyber War Versus Cyber Realities, is probably the best book I've read on the subject. Uh, Brandon's uh, co-author on, on this recent Cato policy analysis um, couldn't be here today, uh, but uh, he, just for the sake of it, is the associate professor at Marine Corps University and scholar in residence at American University School of International Service. Um, moving down the line, Richard Harknett uh, knows something about uh, the material written in the PA. Uh, he wrote a piece on Cyber Command's um, new vision at Lawfare recently. Um, he's a professor and head of the Department of Political Science at the University of Cincinnati. In 2017, he was an inaugural Fulbright Scholar of Cyber Studies at Oxford University, and in 2016, he served as inaugural scholar in residence at US Cyber Command and National Security Agency. He'll remind you of this, but I'll also make explicit that he's here speaking only for himself and not representing the views of any government agency. 
Jacqueline Snyder is assistant professor in the Strategic and Operational Research Department and uh, U.S. Naval War College. She's published widely on these issues. Um, looking forward to her comments. Uh, we'll start with uh, Brandon. He'll come up and, and give you an overview of the PA and his, his overall argument, and then we'll hear some comments from our guests. Thank you very much. Sure, thank you. And I have slides, so I'm not going to try and give you death by PowerPoint, uh, but I should tell you two things first. Uh, people always ask me who I should read, who should you should read in cybersecurity, who's one of the new up-and-coming scholars, and I have to always say that I generally do say Jackie Snyder, and uh, not to butter up before she starts attacking our paper, uh, but she is a rock star, and her kids are up in there in the back, so um, if she does jet off at some point, it's because she's... <laughs> She's doing everything at once, and she is an impressive, impressive individual. And another impressive individual, of course, is my co-author, Ben Jensen, who couldn't be here because he is helping run the Pacific Challenge for the Marine Corps University. And he has been on campus in Quantico since 6.30 this morning, and he probably will be there till 9 o'clock tonight. So he's otherwise engaged in trying to figure out overall Marine time strategy. So he's got other things to do, and hopefully I can do justice to the contributions and the ideas that we put forth in this paper, which um, in many ways have been influenced quite a bit by Ben's addition to our overall project and our overall team, and have really shaped the research in a dramatically different way that I've, it's one of the best things about doing research is when you add co-authors, when you build a team and the direction shifts a little bit, that becomes really interesting. And, uh, you know, to frame this a bit, you know, this came out in the Woodward book. Um, he notes that cyber operations were used to demonstrate capability, uh, were seen specifically as non-escalatory, and they were not intended to trigger a limited conflict. Whereas that goes in contrast to a quote by President Trump, you and your cyber, you're going to get me into war. I'm not going to read the rest of the quote because there are kids here. Um, but that's the kind of tension we have in this discourse. There is this idea, there is this belief that cyber actions are non-escalatory, and then there is this belief that cyber actions are escalatory. And how we fit into the discipline and how we fit into the domain is to offer some sort of empirical analysis. Sometimes the work I do can be construed as advocacy. I do not intend it to be as such. I want to know from an empirical background how things are. And that's what we're trying to do with this research. We're trying to understand the core question regarding offensive cyber operations. What are the inherent escalation risks? And furthermore, are they particularly effective in achieving foreign policy outcomes? This, of course, is a key question. Um, brought home very recently, as John mentioned here, I took a slide from my uh, phone, uh, Israel responds to a cyber attack with an airstrike and a world first. I mean, of course, this wasn't a world first. This was done in the context of a wider, massive military operation done against a non-state actor. So extrapolating a lot of lessons from this event can be very, very dicey. But that puts us in the context that we discuss these operations, this idea that cyber events are inherently escalatory. And for us, the question is really, is that true? We want to, as they might say in Britain, where I spent a few years, interrogate assumptions, understand the core of beliefs. U.S. Cyber Command released this new vision, which Richard had a, and Emily Goldman in the audience had a big hand in articulating the United States' um, new vision calling for persistent action to maintain cyber superiority. 
But at the same time, the Defense Science Board claimed the United States has fallen behind its competitors, both conceptually and operationally. So the goal for us is to use new strategies and new visions to catch up. Through persistence, U.S. cyber operations were influenced the calculation of our adversaries, deter aggression, clarify the distinction between acceptable and unacceptable behavior in cyberspace, and as a result, improve the security and stability of cyberspace. And as you're all well aware, that's a lot to do with one document and with a few operations. Um, the character of cyber operations, the idea of offensive cyber operations kind of has become a more of a global project, not just an American project. The Netherlands, the French, NATO, other nations are taking up this mantle. What we do as Americans can influence other states. Offensive cyber operations entail uh, missions intended to project power in and through foreign cyberspace through actions taken in support of national objectives. But really the question for us is evaluating the policy debate about offensive cyber operations and doing so empirically, because one of the things I've said before many a time is too often in cybersecurity we say, I believe, I think, and not often enough do we say, I know. Not often enough do we take empirical realities and extend them to this domain, because there is a lot we can know. This domain is not new, it's not young. People who started this in the 90s have long since retired. This has been a domain that we can learn things from and we can figure out better policy options and think about ways to tweak the policy options we put forward by understanding the contemporary reality in foreign policy behavior and also by interrogating the foundation of beliefs. What do we do now? And as the paper outlines and as research, um, this will end up in a book um, next year maybe, I hope, I don't know. Um, it's a multi-stage project for the book. One of the things we'd have to do is delineate current empirical patterns. But the other thing we're doing is we're doing simulations of war games, about 400 samples. We have 3,000 survey um, responses on these questions, but we're putting together an entire portfolio about cyber escalation and cyber response options. What we know empirically is between 2000 and 2016, there have been 272 documented cyber exchanges between rival states, according to the data that we have collected. If you bend these objectives by types, you find that 32% are disruption, 54% are espionage, and 12% are degradation. Degradation are the most serious, the most disruptive, I'm sorry, the most damaging forms of cyber operations. What's interesting, though, is to date, the majority of operations do not demonstrate a pattern of escalation. Only 89 of these 272 um, incidents of cyber events saw documented cyber retaliatory responses within one year within domain. Of these 89, 54 or 60% were at a lower level response in terms of severity. So when there often is not a reaction, when there is a reaction, the majority of the reactions at, are at a lower severity level than the initial attack. So that leaves only 35 where there was a, what you may call an escalatory cyber response within domain. Of those 35, 25 were done by the United States. So that leads to a question about statistics and data analysis. If, you're, if your outcome is driven by one state, you have a problem. And I think that is one of the things we have to think about. Do we have a problem here? Is what we believe driven by our behavior in and of itself? And that leads to this idea, the myth of the offensive that we try and articulate, 
that espionage is the, by and large, the dominant outcome in cyberspace. This is a domain of covert operations. But espionage sees little retaliatory escalation, which should be expected. During the Cold War, we did not respond. We did not escalate to espionage, by and large, outside of a few incidents like the Cuban Missile Crisis or um, uh, bombing overflights. But otherwise, more often than not, espionage is accepted. Rather than escalate, at present, cyber operations may offer a setting in which to diffuse larger tensions in a crisis. There's this possibility that cyber in and of itself is a signal and a way for states to shape behaviors. And I think that's something that is underestimated. And if you look at cyber behavior, I don't really have a right way to articulate it, but the best thing I come up with so far is that cyber events kind of happen in waves. They crest. I broke the thing. Uh, they crest and then they recede. Um, it's not an action-reaction response pattern that most people think it is. And that creates a problem overall for our articulation of the domain. Empirically, the domain seems to operate a lot differently than we expect. And that states, in some ways, may escalate to de-escalate, that they may attack to set back the adversary, to de-escalate, to set the adversary back a few steps. Yet there are well-established reasons to doubt that offensive operations results, produce, produce the results that um, are implied by the new vision. Hopefully this still works. And it does not work. Oh, wait, there it is. Yeah, we may be stuck here. It doesn't matter. Um, hmm? Oh, there you go. Let's just go to the last one. I don't want to spend too much time here. Last slide, please. So, well, not the last, last slide. <laughs> there, perfect. So we'll end it on this. So for a variety of reasons, including a lack of efficacy, secrecy, fear of weapons proliferation, which is becoming a greater and greater issue, especially in the context of American weapons bleeding in response to Chinese operations, um, we have to think, really, about what type of system we've put in place and that actually we have witnessed empirically a normative system of restraint established in cyberspace. This goes against the ideas that a lot of people put forward. That it's not that we need to create norms. We already have norms. Norms are well established. And the problem is, is possibly by this new sort of offensive challenge, we may disrupt these norms. We may change patterns just by our own actions. So, Attacks do not beget attacks, nor do they deter them. This idea of cyber deterrence, I don't know how that really fits given the shape of the domain and what we actually see. And given the ambiguous nature of signals in cyberspace, it's difficult to be sure that cyber offensive operations will correctly be interpreted as a single to back down. And I think that's really something that we need to think about more and more in future research, is perceptions and how signals are received. We have a very clear idea of what signals we want to put forth to the adversary, but it's not clear the adversary receives the signals as such. And that can be a really clear challenge. And of course, prudence demands careful considerations of the costs and benefits of operations as they apply to the attacker as well as the defender. So we're not saying that we're doing things wrong. We're just issuing a word of warning and suggesting that the shape of the domain may be a bit different than currently construed um, in some ways. Thank you.
So as, uh, well, first of all, thank you so much, uh, John, uh, and uh, for the invitation to, to join uh, uh, Jackie and Brennan here today at Cato, uh, because, you know, we are at this stage of uh, really formative, and, and we're still at this formative stage, right, uh, with regard to um, a lot of the questions that um, Brandon and Benjamin raised. I think they're asking the, the exact right questions. Um, and so what I thought I would do uh, from a uh, discussant uh, standpoint um, is just run through a couple of um, points that may get us uh, down the road in terms of further, uh, further conversation. Um, as John noted, uh, I'm, I'm here uh, as a professor of uh, political science from the University of Cincinnati, not uh, representing uh, U.S. Cyber Command. Um, that said, I'll give you some of my perspective on the intellectual roots of the strategy uh, as it relates to the questions that were raised here. And so I'll start off with, with this observation about the paper. Um, and that is that I think uh, Valeriano uh, and Jensen have built a compelling and supportive case in favor of the strategy of persistent engagement. The overall empirical findings and their concerns over the reliance on truly offensive operations match actually the intellectual roots behind uh, the strategy. I couldn't agree more uh, with their statement that cyber strategy must start from, quote, an accurate understanding of the domain uh, and the imagined uh, myths, All right? Um, and that's, in fact, uh, the roots uh, from which uh, this shift to the notion of persistent engagement uh, occurred. It was an examination of the empirical record of uh, some eight years of operations uh, to recognize, and primarily, um, how adversaries were sort of acting in, in this space. And so I think part of what we have, if you look at the empirical evidence that this paper brings forth, it actually is the root intellectually, it lines up with the intellectual roots uh, for uh, the strategy. So the question becomes um, where, for those of you that thought there was going to be this sort of cage match uh, up here, uh, you know, sorry to, sorry to disappoint because actually there's a lot of convergence. But as in any formative uh, period, right, both on the intellectual side and on the policy development side, uh, the nomenclature, the language, right, uh, can lead to um, inferences uh, that really weren't uh, intended. And so I wanted to walk you through that. And one of the first ones that we see, I've seen sort of repeatedly, primarily in the press, not on the academic side of things, but th this notion that um, being more active, and that's what uh, persistent engagement is suggesting, um, is not being more aggressive. Right? It's being more active. And what um, action that is being taken isn't ipso facto offensive. Right? In fact, a lot of what uh, operationally is going on um, from what we've seen in reported testimony and press um, is actually lining up very much with uh, what um, Valeriano and Jensen are arguing for, what they label active defense um, and resiliency. 
right? Uh, we would call it anticipatory resiliency, right? Being able to take the operating construct of defend forward and position yourself in such a way that you can actually be close enough to marry both intent, understanding of uh, malware development with the intent. Part of the problem that we've had on the resiliency side, as we've known from GAO report to GAO report, right, um, is the landscape of vulnerabilities is too large, right? So, we, so the question is always, you know, what do I spend my marginal uh, resiliency dollar on? And so part of the overall structure that falls into place under a strategy of persistent engagement is to try to actually leverage, in this case, a defend forward uh, posture, to be able to be anticipatory about where certain actors may be going before they, in fact, go there. Well, if you can actually engage in that and you can change the terrain before it's exploited, then in fact, we're getting the type of stability and stabilization that the Valeriano and Jensen thesis wants to see happen, right? But you're doing it through being, um, honestly, outside a network. And that's, that's the major pivot here, right? It's a redefinition of the terminologies of offensive cyber operations and defensive cyber operations. What we had fallen into was, and it was primarily a technically driven, I think, definition initially, um, was you defended inside your, the boundaries of, and up to the boundaries of your network. And anything outside of that network was deemed offensive. Well, we don't apply that construct to any other domain. Right? If that was the case, then the U.S. Navy would be sitting in uh, Virginia and San Diego, right? And the U.S. Air Force would be sitting out in Omaha, uh, et cetera, et cetera, right? And the deployment of the U.S. Navy when it sails the seven seas, part of its presence actually has a stabilizing effect. It actually suggests certain actions, that, you know, takes freedom of maneuver, uh, away from uh, other folks just by uh, the presence. So much of the notion behind persistent engagement was to recognize a lot of actually what um, Ryan Madison and Brandon had found in, in, in their book, and it maps to the reality that this space has not been tremendously coercive. But then why should we matter? And I think this is where uh, the debate you know, can happen uh, and where I think the difference is um, in terms of application. And that is that if you look at the NSS that was published at the end of 2017, the National Defense Strategy uh, that flows from that and is quoted in the paper, uh, then Cyber uh, 2018 uh, out of DOD uh, and the command. Right? They all posit that the space below what we would deem uh, war, the, below the threshold of armed attack equivalents. That right? that space is actually got another element to it. It is what uh, the work of um, Brandon and others have, have discovered. It is a lot of espionage and the percentages that they hold, right? Very little in the, in the way of destruction. But there are some activities being taken 
that are not one-offs. They're not, in a sense, just attacks. But they're actually campaigns. The linkage of a lot of this activity with strategic intent. And the term strategic intent is to suggest that through these campaigns, you can actually shift relative power toward your advantage. If that holds, and that's a supposition that needs to be tested, both academically and in the policy world. But that's, that's an area that we really need to drill down on. But if that supposition holds, that you can engage in a shift in relative power without going to war, and you're the United States, which has a pretty good capacity to deter all-out war, and your adversaries, or you're a state that would like to shift that balance, you're not happy with where you are in the distribution of power, you're probably not just going home. But you may look for a new seam in which to exploit capabilities in such a way that you might be able to achieve strategic intent. And so if you understand that pivot, this notion of campaigns with strategic intent, leveraging cyber, cyber campaigns, I should say, then the need to engage on a continuous basis, primarily from a defensive motivation, right, and to build more resiliency, this, the hardening that this paper talks about, in fact, requires you, given the nature of the technology and given the nature of the space, to be outside your network. Because if you're defending on your network, you're defending inside your network. And you're chasing. And so much of what is behind, I think, this strategy can be reconceived or should be understood um, as ultimately trying to adjust the balance of initiative in this space. And that's what this space is all about. The dynamic in this space is really a contest over initiative. Can I exploit your vulnerability? Can you anticipate the exploitation of your vulnerability before it's exploited? Right. If I can anticipate the exploitation of the vulnerability before it's exploited, I have initiative. Right. And the command vision that is, is cited in the paper um, made a very conscious decision to not talk about, because if you look at US military doctrine across other domains, it talks about dominance. And the command strategy talks about superiority. Right. And that was a nod to the nature of this domain, that there, this thing is going to ebb and flow back and forth. A dominance is, is, is actually not the right uh, objective, right? Um, and so a recognition that uh, this balance of initiative is going to be uh, absolutely critical. So I think uh, where this Ultimately, I took this paper and read it, I think, differently than maybe uh, you know, uh, some others would have read it. Um, but I saw the logic behind it, uh, the empiricism behind it, mapping to the logic and the empiricism uh, that led to the strategy. And uh, we can talk more about uh, some examples of that uh, in terms of uh, during Q&A. Uh, 
All right. Well, if there's one thing we all like doing, it's talking about cyber and escalation. So exciting to be here. Um, but it's kind of a joke. But the reality is we talk about escalation more in cyberspace than almost any other domain. Uh, maybe nuclear has as much of an obsession with escalation, but it's, it's fascinating how important escalation has been um, for the scholarly debate, but most importantly for the development of strategies. Um, so I'm glad that you guys are working on this and wrote this, because this question about the role that cyberspace plays in escalation has evolved into one of the most pivotal points about the development of strategy in the United States. Um, and before I go any further, I should make it clear that um, while I work for the Naval War College, these views do not represent the Navy, the Naval War College, or the Department of Defense. So I'm now in the clear, right? Um, so it's very it's timely that you would try and use empirical uh, methods to understand a question that is really bogged down strategy. Um, if you look at the 2011 international um, cyberspace strategy that came out of the Obama administration, and then the 2015 Defense Department cyberspace strategy, you'll see a lot of discussion about escalation. And there's a real focus within these strategies about posturing cyberspace in a way to mitigate potential escalatory problems. Um, in a lot of ways, that led the Obama administration to choose a cyber strategy that was primarily a restraint strategy um, that focused its kind of pillars on cyber deterrence and norms and the explicit generation of norms through the State Department um, and negotiations in the UNGGE. Now, we've seen a very drastic shift in that um, now that the Trump administration has come in. Um, and the recent strategies, the um, 2018 National Cyber Strategy, the Defense Cyberspace Strategy, and the Cyber Command Vision represent a real pivot. If you do a, like a control F for escalation, you'll find this word is just almost not in the documents. Um, and with the kind of removal of escalation, you also see new strategies. So instead of a focus on deterrence and norms, instead you see a focus on active engagement on defending outside of the networks, and on um, moving to a, a more kind of coercive uh, foreign policy. So this question of whether escalation in cyberspace exists is very important, because it comes down to the overall potential success of the new strategies. Um, and here's where I completely uh, agree with Brandon. Um, because when I came to this work, I started working on cyberspace and escalation six years ago. Um, and I was looking at the digital vulnerabilities. And if any of you have ever been to a cyber conference, you sit there for three days and go, oh my god, the sky is falling. Everything is vulnerable. We're all going to die. Um, but after you've sat through like three years of them, you're like, oh my god, we're all vulnerable. But we're not dying. And we're still investing in the same technologies that have the same vulnerabilities. Like, this doesn't make sense, right? So you realize after you know, looking at this for a long time that even though a lot of the characteristics of cyberspace seem to be escalatory by their very nature, I mean, uncertainty of effects, uncertainty of how people respond to it, there's an attribution problem. I mean, this could get huge. It could have cascading effects. And yet, the reality, empirically, is what Brandon presented, which is that the vast majority of cyberspace interactions are happening below the threshold of armed conflict. The vast majority of who's taking the hurt in this cyber exchange is actually the economy. And it's a long, slow drain, instead of the cyber Pearl Harbor or cyber Armageddon that we were being warned about in 2011 and 2012. 
My personal work, I work on uh, wargaming and looking at the role that cyber plays in escalation via wargames. And so I have a more of a behavioral frame uh, than Brandon. Um, and my work also suggests the same conclusions that Brandon came with. Um, a little bit different because in wargames, we're allowed to look at hypotheticals. So whereas Brandon's stuck with whatever has happened, I can throw everything at my players and see what this does to escalation. And over the last seven years that we've analyzed uh, games at the highest level, we've seen a remarkable pattern of non-escalatory behaviors. Um, now, I want to caveat, these, my population is American, so I can't really generalize beyond American. But for American players, they view cyberspace in a qualitatively different way. Uh, we had one game where um, a cyber, they thought there had been an, uh, an actual like maritime kinetic attack on uh, a Navy vessel. So, oh my gosh, we're, we're going to need to attack. This is escalation. We're at war. And then somebody in the room said, oh, hold on. It's just a cyber attack. And the whole room kind of, ah, oh, OK, well, we don't need to respond then. Um, but at the same breath, they also don't want to use cyber operations because they're concerned about escalation. And this is something I found in survey experience as well, work I've done with Sarah Krebs at Cornell, where we found that the American public just doesn't feel that cyber attacks warrant the same level of retaliation. So I should get off the stage now and say I agree with you, right? Um, but I don't agree with your policy recommendations. So if cyberspace operations don't create significant escalation, and to be fair, they actually in our games have almost no effect on the game. So they're not coercive. They're not like greatly changing how anybody's acting. Then why is the prescription restraint? It seems counterintuitive that if cyberspace operations operate underneath the threshold of armed conflict, that we should then restrain ourselves because we are worried that it would then lead to escalation. It seems that there's very few chances of escalation. And in fact, what I find is that where cyberspace is most useful and the kind of strategies in which it's best, um, best utilized are strategies that have to do with friction, influence, and not even coercion. Cybers, the uncertainty of cyberspace, instead of creating spiral dynamics and security dilemmas, and instead allows people the space to slow down. It creates anxiety. If you're a state that doesn't want to respond anyway, it gives you the uncertainty to be able to back out. Oh, I couldn't get attribution. Oh, well, I'm not sure if that's really a cyber thing. Um, the cascading effects, once you've gone two, three, four kind of cascading effects, it's really hard cognitively to pair them all together. And if your natural tendency is not to retaliate, then cyberspace actually gives you the ability to not retaliate. So you have this nice space that's created in which you can have some level of confrontation. But what we need to think about in our strategies is about articulating much more clearly what that confrontation looks like. Too often in cyberspace, we revert to analogies. Maneuver, terrain, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, um, without actually being able to articulate kind of what does this technically mean, or what does this mean for the way I utilize my cyber operations. Um, I think now that we're in a place where we've reframed the strategies, the next kind of round of implementation of strategy is to think very specifically. Persistent engagement promises to do everything, everywhere, at all times. And the reality is that the way that strategy will be implemented will be with a prioritization of what we care about. And we won't be doing, we won't be persisting all the time with everyone. We will be much clearer at that point about what exactly we care about, where we're going to focus our resources, and most importantly, um, where we see the resiliency. So with that, I will hand it over.
Well, that was fascinating. Uh, I had uh, skipped over the fact that in my head that uh, we're, we're actually down a guest. So I could have had these guys speak for a little longer. But that's okay, because I'll just take some moderator questions before we go to Q&A. Um, first of all, Brandon, now that you've heard from both Richard and Jackie, do you want, do you pick up anything that you want to respond to directly before? Uh, say a few things real quickly. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that troubles me is even though we may think what we're doing is not aggressive, it's not clear that that is what the opposition is going to understand. And I think that's an open question. And I think one of the things I fault the literature for lately is we're not doing enough research on perceptions and how people perceive signals. I think that's something we need to look into more in the future. And that's something we need to encourage. And you know, I, I don't run into many grad students doing that type of research. Um, Madison back there, back there may actually do some of that research, and I hope she does. But uh, that's something we should encourage others to do, because I believe it's an open empirical question. Uh, but we are at the Cato Institute, so I have to defend them a bit. Uh, the deployment analogy can be a bit troubling, because you know, the question is really, if we deploy a, free, a fleet out to counter Iran, what, is, what are we really getting from that? You know, going to Barry Blechman's work and a force short of war, are we really getting what we're spending? Uh, in terms of forward deployments and using that sort of analogy, maybe, at least for some people, it may be a bit of a dead end. Um, I'm open to the idea, but there is a well-established literature that really questions that sort of forward deployment thinking and really questions where we are and why we are where we are. That's really a question that uh, I think we need to look at more. Um, and finally, to answer Jackie, uh, why do I advocate restraint? Um, I don't like advocating a policy outcome. It's always tough. Remember when you're in grad school, it's always, what are your empirical findings and what's your policy? You know, I'm not exactly sure where we need to go with that. But um, I, I think one of the reasons I would advocate for more restraint is because of what I said before, because of norms and that people will follow our behavior. And if we do things in a certain way, they're construed in a certain way, we may be upsetting norms. And I think actually China sent us a signal very recently at a at Atlanta Council conference where they basically said, uh, or they tried to communicate this idea that us attacking North Korean cyber may be seen by them as a breaking of a norm. And these are the signals we need to start to think about interpreting and how are we going to react. Um, I do agree though, it does allow states to slow down. There may be something more and more to the idea that this is a positive development in international relations. And I wasn't really receptive to that idea in the beginning. Derek Reveron really said that early on and kind of like, eh, whatever. But now, you know, I mean, it's kind of interesting how we, we both co-evolved in this space where, you know, we're open to things that we may not have been open to before. And that's what's so interesting about research and academic engagement and interrogating beliefs. That's what I like being an academic, so. Uh, to pick up a little bit on, on Jackie's point, uh, and have you answer something? Because it seems you both agree on the empirics. There, it, it does appear to be a realm that is not particularly escalatory. Um, and so you advocate restraint to help maintain that feature. And she's saying, well, it's robust enough to deal with a lot of confrontation. Do you think, I mean, is there some threshold within this norm that eventually you'll start to unravel it? I don't know, but a lot of people would have said it was unraveled by the Israelis two days ago. So, uh -huh. okay. so I, I, I mean, to, to go straight to the Israeli one, because I think that's a really good, um, and actually if you're interested, um, I have a piece out in Monkey Cage, Washington Post today with Erica Borgard on the Israeli uh, uh, 
airstrike and its implications for cyber escalation. Um, subtle plug. Um, so what's interesting about the Israeli case is that it happened after they had already like called up tanks. They launched like I think over 300 rockets. They were conducting other airstrikes. So it was in the context of a crisis that had already occurred. So they'd already kind of emotionally committed to a higher level of escalation. And so I actually view that as more of, I, what I think is significant about the Israeli incident, which if, if you don't know, the Israelis um, launched an airstrike against Hamas cyber operatives. Um, and kind of fascinatingly um, announced it on Twitter. Um, I think actually the biggest um, thing to take from that is the ability to integrate cyber uh, responses to cyber operations within an existing conventional campaign, which actually has been a real challenge for states to do. But I don't see that as an example of escalation. Instead, I see it as an opportunity for them um, potentially to show that they, and especially the way they frame it, for them to frame it as we're willing to do this. So they're creating some sort of threat that gives them a more credible deterrence by punishment. Um, but I don't see this as escalation. Yeah, and I agree. And uh, people have always said about my work, well, what about World War III with China? And my response is always, <laughs> well, I'm going to be in the bunker with everyone else because <laughs> at that point, you know, everything we do academically is thrown out the window, really. The world. Yeah. Uh, before we go to Q&A, Richard, so to pick up on this uh, question that actually Brandon did mention, this, this you drew an analogy to forward deployment or uh, a, a, a broadly based and active naval presence that can be stabilizing and so on. Um, so, I mean, the strategy of, uh, say, like primacy or liberal hegemony or sort of hegemonic stability theory, oftentimes as articulated does not include a lot of the uh, quagmires and military messes that we end up getting into. Those are sort of consequences of the strategy that are often unforeseen. Right, so you say, okay, we're going to have this stabilizing global force, and because we have to do things like extended deterrence and sort of uh, uh, promise other countries that we'll defend their territory as if it's ours, we get kind of entangled into conflicts that we didn't foresee. Does the analogy still hold there? Because if we have this uh, very active, persistent engagement cyber posture, uh, will we end up getting down roads that we don't want to go in because of that overall more aggressive posture? Or do you think there's some restraint within the more offensive approach? So more active posture, not aggressive posture. I mean, I, 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 mean, I think those connotations do matter, right? Uh, and so, um, and, and to, uh, you know, to your point, Brandon, right? I mean, if you are concerned about misperception, right? If you're concerned about signaling, and getting those, those, that nomenclature correct, uh, at least the way you perceive it, right, and the way you want it to perceive, right? So, you know, if we look at, um, and I'll get to the, that question, but it, it, it opens up at the operational level. So how do you um, leverage what, what Jackie pointed out? That, you know, if this space is in fact um, non-escalatory but important, Right? So, the, you know, otherwise, if it's not important, then we don't need to even be dealing with this at all. And, and so if there is some strategic outcomes that can come through this interactivity. So the United States has uh, uh, felt that cyber-enabled, this is a cross-domain kind of thing, but cyber-enabled information operations was a threat to the integrity of its elections, 
right? Um, and uh, had a certain policy of restraint in place in, in 2018, right? That um, I would submit uh, encouraged or at least allowed a lot of experimentation. There wasn't a strategy going into 2016. There was a lot of experimentation that then revealed a lot of came some opportunity. And that opportunities, uh, when you link them together, oh, well, we could actually put some strategic intent behind this, right? Um, and so now you're in a different place, right? You actually have actors who can think and say, this is something that we can exploit to undermine a, a real um, pillar of American power, right? So, you know, according to open press sources and General Nakasone's uh, testimony to, in the Senate, uh, there were operations that took place to defend the 2018, right? Those operations required you to be outside of U.S. networks, uh, to do it, right? And that was the point that I was trying to make. I, I, I mean, I made this allusion to, uh, to the, the Navy and moving around, and we can uh, debate that. But the real critical shift, um, to use your word pivot, right, is really this recognition that um, offensive cyber operation, defensive cyber operations do not stop at your own network, right? And so according to the press, what happens in that, that operation is the U.S. Cyber Command says hello to individual um, uh, Russian cyber operators who woke up that morning uh, planning on engaging in cyber-enabled information operations against the U.S. election. That introduced what you talked about, friction. It dialed up organizational friction, right? It didn't destroy anything. It didn't physically stop them from doing something. It dialed up organizational friction and it, it took the initiative away and they spent the rest of the day, week, months, who knows how long, trying to figure out how the hell the Americans in our system, right? So in that kind of case, are we, and this is what we have, uh, this is where I think, uh, you know, uh, I absolutely agree with you, the research has to go, is the fact that you were there and you didn't destroy something, the fact that you were there and you didn't, you know, directly disrupt uh, operations. Is that signaling of certain focal points? And I'll compete with you on organizational friction in the defend forward. That's the signaling that, that it's defense, right? But I had in that code the capacity to brick those computers. The fact that you don't do that, does that start to behaviorally construct the type of signals that would lead to a stabilization that says, this is what competition will look like, this is what, you know, this is what an offense would look like, right? Um, so, you know, I, I think those things, uh, I'm not sanguine about inadvertent escalation, right? Um, but we need to actually, that's, you have to, you have to behave. I would argue that one of the most escalatory things that we've seen uh, over the last 10 years was the fact that the United States wasn't actually constraining actor behavior in this space. So you got experimentation that went to opportunity that went to active strategy. Jackie, my amazing intuitive abilities suggest that you want to say something in response to some of that. Um, a few things. Um, so I am really, really, really doubtful about cyberspace operations being effective signals. Um, for a few reasons. 
Um, so we, we've done this in some of the games that we won where we um, try and measure signaling. And so we ask players, what are the signals of punishment that you sent? What are the signals of cooperation that you sent? And then we ask the responders, the, the other side, you know, what, what signals of punishment did you receive? What signals of cooperation do you receive? Um, and over and over again, um, the players say that they sense cyber operations as some sort of signal, um, usually of punishment. It is never received. Almost never. And so what we've seen from this work we've done on signaling is that signaling is a blunt instrument. The more nuanced it becomes, the less likely the adversary is to pick up on it. And the blunt instruments that the adversary picks up on are the blunt instruments that signal punishment and signal with um, military power. That is the, the, the best signals you can get. And the characteristics of cyberspace because of its virtual nature, because of the potential for covertness, because of the inability to kind of like physically kind of take the intent from the person to the, the action, make it a very difficult and cumbersome uh, mechanism for signaling. We have other things that we can use for signaling in much better ways. And the other thing is, I mean, potato, potato, right? Like you say active, they say aggressive. It's going to be in the eyes of the beholder. I mean, the Chinese believed that the, U the Obama administration was aggressive. So there's absolutely no way that you can phrase this in a way that an adversary, if the adversary believes that you have bad intentions, it, it kind of doesn't really matter the words, the subtleties that in which we try and present it. In some ways, I think it's actually maybe like more useful to just say like, yeah, yeah, yeah maybe offense and maybe defense. Like we can't really tell. Does it matter? We're just going to decrease your effectiveness, um, and just be like completely honest about it. I mean, you know, all the work yeah. on offense defense differentiation suggests that even weapons that should be like clear divides are increasingly impossible to differentiate between right. offense and defense. So I, I'm, I'm reluctant. I don't like the idea of using cyberspace operations as signals. So uh, do I agree with everything you just said? Oh, right. Perfect. So um, what I was trying to, to, to suggest to, to, to Brandon's point is that that wasn't a signaling operation. That was an operation to actually shift yeah, the balance great. of initiative, mm -hmm. right? But the choices you make in terms of demarcating behavior are that, they demarcate behavior. If you continually do it in a certain way, you develop a pattern, mm -hmm. right? And so does that send, you know, there is some messaging in that. Fully agree with you, the other way to do it is just to talk to them, right? They're not gonna trust you, we don't, we're not in a trust environment. I've been arguing for quite a while that the analytical construct of offense-defense is actually quite limiting right. in this space, and you know that, right? And that, and that that's why, this notion spend of, a lot of time on it, balance, <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's a balance of initiative, right, is a better way, because I don't know whether I'm in offense or defense, but I know whether I have the initiative or not, right, on that day. And so, but we're also, you know, you can't change everything overnight, right? And so the fact that we're, we're actually talking about um, a different kind of approach uh, than a reactive, responsive, modality, which deterrence had locked us into, right? And pure cost uh, imposition, I think, is a move forward. But this is where, again, I would agree with you in terms of the research on this, right? And the research would tell us that we should be highly skeptical, right, that nuance can be communicated. So I, I think, actually, from your work, it's not a necessarily a primarily coercive space. It's not necessarily a primarily um, signaling space. It's a, a space where you can exploit, right? 
And if you can exploit certain outcomes to advance your interests, so if I'm North Korea and I'm under international sanctions and I can exploit vulnerabilities in SWIFT, right, then I can move financial resources to me to maintain my uh, military uh, and regime, I'm engaged in strategic behavior. That isn't financial crime. It's actually strategic behavior. Can I anticipate that in such a way if that is the interest of the international community or the United States to take that terrain away from you? Sorry, I'll use the word terrain. Right? But take that, uh, that space uh, in the financial infrastructure and make it more resilient right, so that it can't be exploited. Now I've taken a strategic opportunity away from a particularly a an actor that has the entire international community sanctioning it. We have been going on a lot. I do want to get to questions. I do have one more very selfish uh, question, uh, just from my own perspective. It seems that there are some practical reasons to exercise some measure of restraint in cyberspace. The signaling doesn't work that well. There's the risk of misperception and, and all this kind of stuff. And then there's normative reasons why we might want to uh, create a cyberspace that is... Uh, one we prefer as opposed to one that degrades and, and gets out of hand. Is, so from my perspective, I get in trouble a lot because I say a, a lot of don'ts in my policy advocacy. Don't do this and don't do that. Do less of that, et cetera. What about, what, what is the role of diplomacy in cyberspace? I mean, uh, some, some efforts have uh, sort of come and gone. Uh, do you think it's valuable to engage in big treaties in the way we used to do in the Cold War with nuclear arms or, or uh, uh, in, in other realms? I mean, what, what can treaties and diplomacy uh, and talking do uh, in this realm? I think the most important thing is communicating our signals accurately. And that's the most useful tool of diplomacy. And, you know, we saw this recently with Russia where, you know, the, the, the Dutch had picked up a bunch of Russians and sent them home the same day. And then a few weeks later, there was diplomacy and everyone got together and had a coordinated effort against Russia. And that's where there can be a positive, clear signal done through communication and through a clear articulation of our ideals. And I hope we're getting better at that now, given what's going on in the State Department. But we had a setback for a few years and uh, it's something we need to do better in the future. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I think ultimately this whole thing has to fall under a strategic framework of whole of nation plus. Um, it, you, we have to align whole of government with private sector and with the citizenry, but you have to actually do that with allied governments, allied uh, private sector and allied. So there's a huge role uh, to do that. Um, if we can then expand, you know, we talk about like-minded, I'm not a big fan of that term, right? I, I think you, you work with allies first. Um, that's a critical role uh, for diplomacy. Uh, but as where you leverage tacit bargaining, there's no reason why you can't talk uh, to adversaries, and we should be doing both. I think the greatest thing that diplomacy, and particularly the State Department, can provide to this is an articulation of what we care about. Um, and that's been a real struggle for all the strategies. We say we want an open, secure, interoperable internet. Um, but what does that really mean? Um, I think what made Kennan and containment such a compelling and a strategy that was so cohesive was its ability to articulate um, fundamentally what the United States cared about and what its priorities are. And I see that as really the realm of um, diplomacy. That's something that the, the US Defense Department is never going to be um, as nuanced or adept at. 
Okay, great. Uh, we're going to go to audience questions now. A uh, couple uh, ground rules. Please wait for the microphone to come to you. There's people watching online, so they need to hear you. Uh, please identify yourself and please ensure that you do, in fact, ask a question and not give a speech. <laughs> Any hands? I see one over here on the aisle. The, the lady there, yep. Thank you. Um, I'm a reporter from Voice of America. Um, I want to focus on North Korea a little bit. Um, if I could get everyone's assessment on how you view North Korea's cyber threat capability and how do you see North Korea's cyber threats, I mean, cyber attacks as being the next kind of um, form of provocation and specifically what kind of areas would they likely attack in the future? So what we've seen out of North Korea in the past has been, um, first off, a willingness, um, which I think is actually really important when you're talking about the capabilities of nation states, because there's what can they do and what are they willing to do. Um, if you rank ordered all of the nations, North Korea would not probably make the top three or four for what they can do, but the willingness makes up for what they can't do, right? Um, but that said, I mean, what you've seen from them in the past is a mixture of activities meant to generate income for the regime, um, and then uh, activities that are kind of um, meant to influence kind of regime stability. Um, so you see kind of a wide variety of like ransomware attacks or targeted kind of like the Sony hacks. Um, but what, and I'm, look, I, I, I'm speaking of this off the cuff, everything I've seen, open source reporting. Um, what I've read less of in open source reporting is um, North Korea being a serious player when it comes to kind of things like, you know, supply chain vulnerabilities or um, the big kind of persistent accesses that you need to be a player on the level of Russia or China. So you're not going to see the really expensive access um, portfolio that you would see from a nation state that has a strong technological base um, and a lot of money that they've invested into this. Um, similarly, if you look at the, the, the kind of types of attacks that are occurring from North Korea, they're kind of more on the nuisance level and less on the kind of uh, strategic level. And um, they're willing to take those nuisance level attacks at the same time that they're um, conducting missile launches. Um, the reality is that the most provocative thing going on in North Korea is always going to be about missiles and nuclear weapons with artillery as a third. Um, cyber, I think, is a sideshow in this. And I believe that because of the heavy balance of power uh, between North and South and the United States and the, the nuclear weapons, the artillery that are involved, um, that it actually is, um, because of that reason, it is stable enough to withstand a lot of uh, cyber engagement without significant escalation. Now, Anytime you make a pronouncement about what North Korea will do, you will be wrong tomorrow. So I'm, I, I wouldn't go out to say that I have any idea what Kim Jong-un's response to cyber activities would be. But so far, it seems to fall under the level of the other issues that are happening. Can I just add one uh, quick, quick thing to that? Uh, I would add to Jackie's willingness, which I think is dead on, is, is the notion of uh, intent as well. So you can be willing to, you have the capability, you have a willingness to use it. And then do you have actually strategic intent, right? And these objectives, what's interesting to me about exploring uh, in terms of research uh, cyber is that it enables a lot of different strategic objectives, right? I mean, you know, to a certain extent, a nuclear missile, you know, you had sort of one use for it, right? 
um, to, to mainly, and it was mainly strategic deterrence. Right? But I can be using with this one state, you just listed a whole bunch of things that advance ultimately around its concern about regime survivability, right? So some of that, uh, so they can use it for finance, they can use it uh, to when, if you go back to Sony, you know, I mean, it was about the legitimacy of the regime and the way that they saw it. But I can be uh, a capable, willing actor out of Beijing, and I have a very different game that I'm going to play, right, with regard to uh, the use of cyber ways and means, right? Because I'm seeing, I've built it into a grand strategy that's supporting my development strategy, so I understand how the digital road, Silk Road, uh, fits into the, the BRI and why I need to actually exfiltrate lots of R&D out of the U.S. in order to make that happen, right? Same ways and means, zeros and codes, I'm applying them in different ways based on combination of capabilities, willingness, and then that added intent. We have some research forthcoming on revisionist actors in cyberspace, and one of the things we found through experiments is that the weaker power kind of is doing what they're doing in cyberspace because they want to be noticed, they want to be respected. And the dominant power is doing things what they do in cyberspace to maintain superiority or dominance. So this idea of power equalization through cyberspace, I don't even think, it, it's not really been borne out empirically, I don't even think it was borne out experimentally in terms of behavior. And I think that maps pretty well to North Korea's behavior that they're doing things to be noticed. And that's why it's not surprising that they're continuing their old pop culture efforts and you know they used to kidnap directors and actors and make movies. And that's why it's not that surprising that they would go after Sony because it fits that pattern of how they behave and the court of, I, I want to be noticed, I want to be respected. So that is something that's fairly clear with the behavior. But then on top of that, as Jackie said, there is the economic perspective too, which I think we haven't done enough work on I as agree. a field. I yeah. hope that the next time this is convened, it's about economics and cyber. <laughs> Madison, I think I saw John's hand up. Yeah, John Mueller from yeah. Cato and Ohio State. Uh, could you, uh, Brandon talked about uh, norms that they already exist. Could you explain more what they are and also what you think a norm regime would be? For example, the uh, it seems to be a norm that it's okay to spy with uh, cyber. Um, spying is about the fourth oldest profession and it's been going on for a while. And uh, even some has been obviously electronic, uh, um, tapping phones and so forth has been around for a long time. And that seems to be a norm, a norm and the reaction to be entirely, essentially plug the holes rather than any kind of retaliation. On the other hand, the other end would be killing people with it, which seems to be not has happened whatever. Which, which might be, but anyway, the, the issue is, is if there's a regime of norms, what should the norms be? What are they now? And what do you think would be a sensible set of them? Yeah, and what I think has become very clear is that there's a norm against attacking critical infrastructure. There's a norm attack against civilian death. And there's a norm about even altering elections at this point. And these have been fairly stable at this point and that we've seen intrusions but we haven't seen these sorts of, these really degradative attacks that a lot of people had expected at this point. But the problem, of course, with norms is that I don't know what sort of institutional regime would actually work in this space. And I've been very dubious of the UNGGE and other sort of efforts we've had because they're not, 
communicative enough, they're not inclusive enough to really construct a clear system of norms. And there are vast differences between what the Americans, the Russians, and the Chinese want. So for me, norms are more of a series of behaviors that do not necessarily need to be institutionalized and that institutions would make norms better and more clear. But I'm not sure we're gonna get there in this space anytime soon. I would hope we would, but I'm not too positive about that myself. No, I would agree. Good to see you, John. Um, so if, if we understand norms to be a convergence of behavior, expected behavior, right? And not uh, 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 stated aspirations. Right? I think we've got a lot of stated aspirations in this space right? that people are attributing the, 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 the notion of norm to. Um, but we don't have, we've got a much more limited uh, amount of convergence of expected behavior. One of those convergence is, um, I think, most of the activity is staying away from equivalence of armed attack. Right? So I think there is a convergence of behavior around using cyber operations and campaigns in such a way to advance national interest, I'm talking now at the state level, right, um, without having to use, without crossing that threshold of armed attack, right? That may be because there's, there's a strategic deterrent there. There may be because this, there's just a different opportunity, right? On the financial side, I think we see, uh, I think one of the most uh, robust ones is uh, around the integrity of the financial unit. Right? Uh, like, so even organized crime uh, that's engaged in a lot of, of cyber-enabled theft isn't messing with the unit of currency, right? So is we, and it makes sense, right? If you're gonna steal stuff, you actually want it to be worth something. Um, and so is that an area where we're seeing, uh, where we might actually go all the way to some sort of institutionalization because states have an interest in that and you actually have the criminals having an interest in that. So there's those types of convergences that I think we can look at. But I, I'm not sanguine at all that we're going to get, if you think that, the, if you use the term norm to say that this is going to become an unactive space or an inactive space, then that's not going to happen. There's too much opportunity. I always like to. We've been doing a lot of war games and simulations lately, and uh, someone will invariably say, let's attack the SWIFT bank network. And then it, the SWIFT banking networks, and then the, the rest of the, always, yeah, the it's system. It's always railroads in my games. And the rest of the room will just go, oh, no, that's not even an option. So I think there is some sort of convergence that that seemingly is off limit, even for us, possibly. But uh, that's where we are. And it's not a lot. But if we're looking for shared standards of behavior, we can get somewhere. But if we're looking for rules, I don't know. That's going to be tough. Great. Other questions? Down here in front, Madison. Thank you. Um, Robert English from the University of <clears throat> Southern California. On this important matter of perceptions and do our adversaries understand what we're doing the way we do and vice versa, because that can lead to misunderstanding, escalation, et cetera. I have a really simple question, and maybe it's below the level of expertise of this panel and most in the room, but I don't know the answer, so I'll ask it anyway. What was Russia, in your opinion, up to in 2016 with um, the hacking and the manipulation of social media, if that's a fair example of cyber engagement or cyber intrusion? Uh, was it, as much of the dominant narrative would have it, a plot to undermine 
American democracy to destroy our democracy and so forth? Was it maybe closer to something Dr. Valeriano said at the outset? In fact, um, perhaps, uh, and you weren't referencing Russia, but just in, in principle, uh, a non-escalatory, a cyber response in lieu of a more militarized response to some perceived strategic move um, that we or the West had made. They were countering, they were responding, actually from the position of the, the victim or the responder. Or is it, in all of this, um, a mistake to look for some concerted, some clear strategy behind it, when in fact maybe it was one group experimenting in military intelligence, another group of civilian contractor hackers given license to explore this, and, and there wasn't any strategy behind it per se, at least not so concerted as we uh, often conclude. So that's almost like a menu of three ways, but maybe there's a fourth <laughs> and a fifth. How do you understand what Russia did in 2016? Yeah, I see it as a series of harassment exercises that you would do to any rival state. And, you know, I've written about this before, Paper Tiger Putin, that this idea of they do what they can, but it's not much. And that uh, it could be worse in the long run, but I think one of the things we could take away, if you want to take a positive from the Mueller report, is that it, it didn't seem like there was a clear Russian strategy. It was more of an exploration of possibilities. And that's really what's interesting about cyber. There's an exploration of possibilities, but so far a lot of states have kind of stayed behind going too far. And that's something we can hearten ourselves and say that, you know, we're lucky so far. But if we do not increase our defenses, if we do not do basic protections, if we don't cut off avenues like Facebook, if, uh, you know, the only time I've been scared in cybersecurity lately was I saw a report done by uh, NATO researchers about things that you can do with just simple social media and dating apps in the middle of an exercise in the middle of Europe. And the things that they were able to do with three SIM cards and just Bumble and Tinder and a Facebook group is just, it's remarkable. So to me, there are things that can happen that can be very dangerous. There are things that these rival states can do that can harass but just how far are they willing to go? I don't think it's very far right now, but the future is open, obviously. Yeah, it's hard for me to tell, um, sitting from where I sit, how much of this was concerted and how much was um, a general dislike of one candidate um, and then the room for experimentation. I mean, if I was writing a chapter on innovation, I would probably say this was a really good example of potentially bottom-up innovation, where you have this kind of general, like, antipathy, um, and then just free reign to do whatever you want. But since they were so strategically successful, I think it was a series of tactical successes that bumbled into a strategic effect. Um, I mean, I don't know for sure, but that's my, my look at it. Um, but. That won't happen again because it's already been assessed as a strategic success. And so I bet, I, I don't know Russia that well. I don't think anybody really can claim to know. I bet there's a lot more control than there was back in 2016 um, because, I mean, that's what institutions do. If I see something that's going really well, I'm not going to let it, like, keep doing its thing. I'm going to take control of it and take credit for it. Um, so my guess is that the, this becomes kind of more institutionalized um, in Russia, probably, um, and maybe to it may end up going to the detriment. I, all of that's on with no insight on the actual kind of decision making in Russia. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm in the camp that says it was uh, you know experimentation to opportunity to to strategy, but but now you've actually have the use case, 
right? So if you, if you Googled uh, election security, cybersecurity, uh, pre-2016, 99% of the articles would have been about counting the vote. It would have been about the machines themselves. Could you manipulate the machines, right? It wasn't about manipulating the voter, right, through cyber-enabled uh, information operations. And my concern is that we are right now focused on technology that occurred in 2016 and not where we're going to be in 2020. I mean, what I'm going to be able to do with deep fakes uh, in terms of marrying um, uh, computer-generated video and audio and, I mean, I'm going to be able to manipulate space, information space, on a scale and scope and uh, an authenticity um, that we're not prepared for, right? Uh, and so uh, if I know that, opportunity exists and I want to play, you know, if this is just playing havoc, but it's a way I would argue, hey, the more we are arguing internally, the less we're doing things on the outside, that's actually strategic intent, right? And so um, I'm, I'm actually quite concerned about where the technology is going uh, and our capacity, and this is where uh, public and private sector alignment uh, this whole nation notion uh, on this particular area is is got to start to occur. Uh, we've got to be able to sit down with the social media, with the technology that's that's being developed, uh, particularly uh, I think in uh, in AI enabled video. Um, that's just going to we, we have a default to believing what we see and hear. Um, you know, I freaked out at Forrest Gump. You know, uh, I mean, everyone was walking out of the theater crying, and you know, I was like, "Did you see? He was standing next to Nixon. He didn't really stand next to Nixon. This is really, really bad because people are going to think that he stood next to Nixon." I, I just didn't like Forex. But, uh, <laughs> uh, no, I totally agree with you about the whole "What war are we fighting?" And that's kind of where I disagree with "Like war." Is that you know, our friend Nina Collars once said, "Why are we devising a strategy to fight Facebook when Facebook won't be a thing in two years?" You know, that's where we are now. Facebook is not really a thing anymore for anyone. I mean, it is for the voting for, It is yeah. for the demographic. It's, it's more for our parents now than, uh, than for us. So, yeah, <laughs> you know, it's just an issue. But I do like the point you raised about the bureaucracy. I think that's something that's underexplored. And it's, it's why cybersecurity is so fascinating from a research perspective because there's so many questions. And the bureaucratic inertia of having, say, 40,000 hackers in China, theoretically, you know, what happens, you know, you can't control them all. And by definition, these people are counterculture, counterinstitution. You know, what will happen when that gets out of control? That's one of the fears we can have about cybersecurity and spending a lot of money in this space and enabling people to do things we may not otherwise be able to control once we do unleash that sort of Pandora's box. Yeah, the bureaucracy is interesting to me, too. From a, from a Cato libertarian perspective, we always are aware of uh, those cases in which the national security bureaucracy can do a lot of things on its own and perhaps undermine liberal democratic norms here. And so to the extent that a lot of this stuff is going, I mean, one of the biggest limitations, no matter how, uh, how wonderful your empirical work is, is that we don't know a ton about what the, what the secret part of our cyber posture is. Um, and that might lead to decisions that are made and postures that are taken uh, that the American people don't know about and therefore don't have a say in. And uh, I think there should be some democratic input on that. Let's have one uh, additional question over here. 
they can they can both ask. No, that I'm a person for the last question. I'm really a neophyte here, but I'm just interested in any of the panel as to whether it's related to things like uh, Wes Kuzmal has written in a book called Quiet Enjoyment, which gets at digital signatures and true authenticity in ways of cutting down on some of the stuff that came from one of the recent questions, you know, like the 2016 election, where people who write or publish anything have to do digital signatures, which are traceable, which cuts down a lot of the copying and parroting and republishing, as one of you just said, is going to come in 2020. Is anyone familiar with that? Uh, Mr. Cosmo, I think, was in the Air Force originally, but he's been involved over the years in the development of several uh, you know, electronic ways of doing things. And it's an interesting concept because it kind of pins down what true authenticity is in this whole world. Okay, Let's, why don't you pass it to him and we'll fit, we'll fit in a, a dual question for the final one. Is it true that 78% um, of business is, is not ready for cyber security? Nice and succinct. <laughs> um, well, let me try to tackle these both quickly. Um, asking about true authenticity in the current internet era is probably problematic given that we don't really know what authenticity means anymore. But there are interesting things going on, especially like the DMARC standard for email, and there was a recent report looking at campaigns and what percentage of campaigns, which was most but not all, are using the standard to assure that the communications that they're putting forth come from that campaign. And we need to start to do that. We need to start to think about that and extend that to social media and Facebook and how uh, political advertising is done and our political advertising being done by the people who say they're actually doing it. That's really a challenge. That's something we need to think about. Uh, now, um, has 75, what was it, 70, are they unprepared? Yeah, they are unprepared from the perspective of, I think we have too many Companies. Mom and pops are. I think one of the problems is there's too much IT and not enough security that we kind of make them do the same thing. And these are two different roles and two different tasks. Operational security is much different from making you know the tanks run on time or the trains run on time. That that's kind of a tanks now. Same thing. It doesn't matter. Um, but yeah, I, I think that's that's a challenge if you want to take that trope, I, I think we need to think more about what operational security is in the business sense. And I don't think we think enough about that. I mean, we built a system uh, that wasn't meant to do any of this. I mean, its original architecture didn't anticipate everything that we're asking it to do, right? And so its two main principles was, act, were, was about access and efficiency. Access and efficiency are the antithesis of security, right? And so what we've been doing is plating on security onto a system, right, that's, that, that's actually doing a heck of a lot more than we asked it to do. So there are, you know, technologists who would argue to you that we have to essentially reset this and uh, you can employ and deploy technologies that in fact have security baked in. But that's not where the market forces are right now, right, because we still demand sort of customizable convenience which leverages that access and uh, efficiency uh, dynamic, right? But in the end, I want to end in my, with, with Jackie's notion about intent uh, and willingness. Um, the code doesn't differentiate between good marketing, influence, manipulation, or control. Right? The code can do all of those things. 
it's the determination of how we want to actually deploy that technology. Um, and it runs that range. Um, and we haven't had enough of public policy discussion about how we, I think everybody in this room would be comfortable with marketing and influence, probably a little less comfortable with manipulation and control as outcomes. Um, and that's really where we need to think about, uh, for me, the overarching issue about cybersecurity is figuring out how we demarcate uh, between those four things. So on the 78%, I don't know if that's true or not. I do know that um, the major corporations are putting extraordinary amounts of resources into cybersecurity. I think that there's been a, a pretty decent shift to them realizing it's very, very important and investing a lot in it. And that's why we actually see a lot of the best cybersecurity and cyber defense coming out of the private sector. Um, but who ends up having trouble are the mom and pops or the smaller businesses. And what I see them doing is mostly investing in um, cyber insurance. Um, Ooh, that's yeah, a whole other. Yeah, getting, getting some, you know, some cybersecurity kind of software and getting cyber insurance and then kind of calling it good. Um, and that's probably where there's going to be some pretty big um, cascading effects. And then when it comes to this question about authenticity, um, I don't think it's a technological solution. I think that people... People believe what they want to believe. And when you're inundated with information, um, you have to go to cognitive shortcuts and heuristics in order to determine what information you're going to believe and not believe. And if you already have codified heuristics, if you're at a point where you believe enough in your own experience, you're going to pick information that fits your initial biases. And I don't know what the solution to that is, because those people aren't seeking out whether the information they're getting is authentic. They already have an idea, and they're looking for information that supports it. Um, that's not like it's a, they're good people, bad people. These are this is just how we as human beings develop, um, and I don't know what the solution is to that. And I, I do want to say at the end that your kids have been remarkable, and they deserve Actually, all the Madeline, ice cream in the world. Madeline deserves it. Well, that's between you and, uh, and Madison. You, you two. Madison, yeah. yeah. She just came here for a burger, and she's yeah, she's been... just helping me out. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well. Uh, you know, I think the polls show that Americans are, are uh, not nearly where they need to be in terms of their foreign policy chops. Uh, a, a lot of them, there's a lot of voter ignorance about basic issues in foreign policy, and I think that's even more the case in cyber. And so these experts have really done something of a public service because this is a bigger and bigger part of uh, the way the international system works, and they've come to try to explain it to, to lay people like us. And so let's give them a round of applause. Thank you guys for coming. <laughs> <laughs>